So, good evening and welcome to the Dr. Zeus Film Podcast. Last night we broke from the, the noir film. I understand that. But I had to do that because I couldn't go without paying homage to Ennio Morricone. Even though Ennio Morricone is no longer with us, you know, we have to give respect. And yes, some of his themes you you could use in a film noir setting. Um, like I've said, Tarantino has reused a lot of Ennio Morricone's themes. Um, but tonight, you know, I was going to talk about The Third Man. And instead I went to, there's a really great film noir group classic film noir lovers on facebook so i asked the question and i got about 200 responses which is great would you class would you all classify the third man as film noir by the way this is a dr zeus film podcast good evening let's dive into this and i got a lot of interesting responses I feel that the third man is absolute noir. The chase scenes through the streets and the tunnels alone will tell you it's noir. Okay. And then I got a very interesting... Now, noir does derive from German expressionism, as did the film we talked about on Halloween, uh, Nosferatu, the vampire film by F.W. Murnau. So this person said, of course, it is interesting that it is made in Vienna where I lived at different times, a decade in totality, because it highlights the uh, pertinence of German expressionism to the film noir. Actually, film noir as we know it would not be possible without German expressionism, which is true. Um, oh, I love, this is his response. I appreciate that. I will certainly check it out. I have had conversed a couple of times with the only surviving credited cast member of the third band, Hubert Helbrick, the boy with the ball that accuses Joseph Cotton of murdering the porter. He would be at the Third Man Museum, also a great Third Man tour in Vienna decades ago, and an interesting man who is very approachable. So these are these are different reactions that we get when I ask that question. Is it noir? Some people said, nope, not a chance. Some have said, yes, I consider that the third man contributes to the very definition of film noir. Then <laughs> um, there's this one. Orson Welles ruined this movie for me. Other than that great movie, I do think it's noir. Oh, that's interesting. I wish they could have slipped Peter Lorre into that film. <laughs> I love these responses. Mm. One of the film noir without being noir or knowing that it is noir. A noir? It's almost the noir. Good. No, it's something almost in, indescribable. Okay. European noir, or British anyway. They don't use the women the same way in the films as in America, which proves that a femme fatale is not necessarily for noir. All right. One person said, at first I read this, I thought it was the thin man. I was like, where are you? What are you smoking? But yes, definitely noir. I'm not smoking anything I don't smoke. So here at the Dr. Zeus Film Podcast, so I wanted to analyze noir. Now, we were going to talk about the third man, but I need a day and a half to prepare because this takes a lot out of me because I have to get it right. I can't just half-ass it. Oh, let's talk about the third man. I have to revy up clips of the third man, you know. And yes, it's Joseph Cotton and 
Orson Welles probably in one of his most iconic roles, aside from Citizen Kane. In fact, Orson Welles plays the villain in, or or is he truly the villain, in The Third Man. There's, there's a really great moment in The Third Man. And for me, and Eddie Mueller of TCM would probably also agree, since he has introed it as an, a, a new war. There's a great scene where Joseph Cotton and Orson Welles are on top of the Ferris wheel. Now, Orson Welles being Harry Lyme and Joseph Cotton being, we got to get it right now because, you know, I don't want to, I don't want to step on anyone's toes. Joseph Cotton is Holly Martins. Orson Welles is Harry Lyme. Makes you want to have a lime cake. So there's a really great moment, as I said, and it dives, you know, noir. I mean, it's the cinematography, it's the look, it's the feel. So there's this great vantage point. It's always about vantage points. I go to a lot of concerts, and so whenever I see someone has recorded the show, if I'm sitting on the top, I want to see the middle vantage point. It's like, oh, okay. I didn't see that from, but it's it's interesting. It's still enjoyable. As for this film, you got to, these, these are interesting moments so they're in this ferris wheel and they're and they're talking and harry lime says to um holly would you really feel any pity if one of those dots stopped moving forever now i can't really conjure orson welles voice orson welles had a very interesting voice and here we are talking on a podcast and in the 1930s the war of the worlds which orson welles read on the radio causing pandemonium this is the this is the 1930s you know uh and he had that voice where he was able to project but yeah it's it's such a great moment and we're going to talk more about it on Saturday. If, if you know, cross your fingers. This movie is just, it's noir. And that's why I wanted to ask the question. Because people have a different opinion of what is noir. That's like asking what is punk or what is metal. You know, and we talk about music sometimes on this show. I'm a big Tool fan. I have the, the Tool shirt on. Um some would consider tool alternative some would consider tool metal hard rock prog rock but they really are within their own genre they have aspects where they use synthesizers they're using hard uh, instrumentals so yeah it's it's like trying to box things in and i will mention even though we are talking about film noir, but if I were a director, I'd put him in a movie, put a top hat on him, and he's a noir icon. He could be a detective, and that's Mr. Neil Young, who really defies genre. You know, his sounds... I For a long time, I always thought Neil Young was country, and then I'm listening to him as a teenager. It's like, oh, okay, that's kind of grungy which is good. That's prog rock. That's a little bit folky. Okay. Mm, okay. That's introspective. It's singer songwriter, you know, and sometimes, you know, as a music fan, it's like, what are, what is the water like in Canada? Because you think of all these, you know, you think of Rush and Neil Young and Joni Mitchell and Rufus Wainwright. Um, 
Kate, I'm a big Katie Lang fan. Katie Lang's funny because she doesn't take herself too seriously. I mean, uh, I've seen clips of her except a Juno with a wedding dress on. And it's like, oh my God. You know, in the beginning, she called herself country punk. Yes, we're, we're, we're veering away from the noir just for a bit because sometimes I like to mix the music in there. But, you know, we could also, the noir aspect is it being a little bit eccentric. You know, I come from a long line of eccentrics. Trust me. They, we are strange. And as a little kid, and I've said this before, when someone calls you strange, it kind of does hurt your feelings. But then as you become an adult or a teenager, being strange is kind of cool because it's like, oh, yeah, I, I kind of am weird. You know, um, I don't think like other people, you know, I, I, I've, I'm very aware of the mob mentality and people's opinions and ganging up you know and we could attribute that to noir films you know um these are the films of my grandparents i mean my grandmother would go to the movies every day in oakland california and you know i think i had brought up one time that i was going to start watching the third man and she said, oh, that's such a good movie. I think because she was aware of... Jo Joseph Cotton was in so many movies, you know. Um, and then and then Orson Welles, you know. Orson Welles was in The Lady from Shanghai, which we could kind of consider a noir, you know. I think we, we've dived into the true aspects of noir, in it's German expressionism. It's it's a French word, you know. Um, but then you know European films. I I think um, there there's unfortunately is a misunderstanding and there's an ignorance that oh it's a European film. Well, you know a lot of us in the United States weren't we didn't we weren't originated here. You do know that is that. This is the land of immigrants. So we all came from different places, you know, um, came on the boat, came on the train, you know, walked across. And a lot of these filmmakers, you know, I mean, Carol Reed, for one, he made the third man. I mean, let's let's not forget about that, you know. Carol Reed, I believe, was the brother of Oliver Reed. You know? Let's 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 make sure we do our homework here. You know. I I don't if I ever were to sign this show away, I would not completely sign the rights away because I do prefer doing it myself. Because I have complete control complete artistic control so I'm, I'm sure prince would really applaud me for that because you know prince wouldn't record with people unless they had control of their masters unless they had complete and total artistic control you know set uh what is it um ray charles was the same way Ah, uh, Carol Reed. So Carol Reed directed 
the third man. And if we go into here, because you know we want to make sure this is legit. Because I know he was related to Oliver Reed. <laughs> oh, Citizen Kane. Here we go. Okay. See, The Third Man is such a mysterious movie because it, it the music, the lights, you know, um, the well, for one, that Zephyr tune that's played, the theme, you know, but also the vantage points, as I said before, you know, I took art in school and they would teach you, you know, you're going to draw the vanishing point where it begins and where it ends. So if you look at the third man, there's that wonderful moment in the cemetery where he's walking and you look at the vanishing point and the trees and everything. That's the cinematography right there. And then the look and the color, you know, we're, I was going to highlight this on Saturday, but I'll highlight it. So there's a San Francisco band called the Black Rebel Motorcycle Club. They take their name from the Marlon Brando gang in the movie The Wild One. Now, The Wild One is not film noir. But the BRMC, as they're called, very, very interesting sound. I mentioned them because their 2003 album take them on on your own is a is an homage to the third man you know the moment where orson wells is running through the uh tunnels in the sewers and so there's this really great album cover shot um, by the black rebel motorcycle club of all three of them within that vantage point of the tunnel so it's 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 that's totally the third man. I, when I first saw that album cover, I knew. I picked up on it and I thought, oh, that's that's inspired by the third man. So this movie, you know, when we talk about it, we're going to dive into it. I mean, we're going to dive into, there's, there's a, a, myth, a mythology to this movie, you know. And yeah, some would call it European noir, but that's that's kind of writing it off. I, I think a lot of you, like I said before, you write these European films off. If it's, if it's got subtitles, you're not going to watch it. And that's sad because then you're taking, you're basically taking yourself out of the equation. You just because you don't want to read when there is an interesting story right there. And you know, this year I watched the seventh seal and if you're going to watch an Igmar Bergman film, there's subtitles, so get ready. And it was such an interesting film. I forgot that there were subtitles because I was so invested in the story. You know, Max von Sydow, uh as, as the, the knight and then death. Him and death are playing chess, you know. That would be an interesting noir film today if someone had a character watching that. And it's a murder mystery. They're murdered while they're watching The Seventh Seal. But then you could go back in time and it could be in the 1950s they're watching it because it came out in the 1950s. Who knows? Film noir, you know, 
we could even maybe along the lines you know throw the old tv shows in there as film noir but we're talking about film we're going to talk more extensively about the third man you know whenever i hear joseph cotton's name i i think a lot of us think of who's afraid of virginia wolf where um elizabeth taylor's character famously says what a dump and then she says she says to her husband played by richard burton real life husband what's that from what a dump and he doesn't know and so she kind of knows and they're discussing it in the kitchen while she's eating a a chicken wing and she's like what's it from I don't know Martha oh, it's from some goddamn Warner Brothers movie that goddamn Betty Davis a lot of goddamn came out of Elizabeth Taylor's mouth um, and then she starts oh yeah Betty Davis she wants to go to Chicago for Joseph Cotton <laughs> yeah yeah and you know that's another movie where the look and feel of the film i'm not going to say that who's afraid of virginia wolf is noir but the look and feel is very mysterious first of all it's shot in black and white the lighting the hue uh, that sets the tone in the mood and that's what film noir does you know um so i mean film noir could be done today and it has been done today and i i mentioned that earlier in the week when we discussed perry mason which is, you know, what I what I liked about that is it's first of all HBO did it, so HBO is going to go big. So when they take an icon like Perry Mason and give him an origin story, full full on with a potty mouth, you know, because this is not your grandparents Perry Mason. He's saying fuck this and eat that, um, and the situations. I mean, he's he's got a, a girlfriend who comes over and they have sex and she gives him mezcal she's from mexico and but it is noir the you know the influence i mean that's why i loved it i thought oh this is so great and so noir continues and here we are noir november you know just highlighting everything that we love about this and so i'm gonna do try to do a live broadcast on my podcast on the podcast um page the dr zeus podcast um because i couldn't rebrand it yet to the dr zeus film podcast and we're just gonna i want people to have a discussion about noir what does it mean to them what is what what is quintessential noir what is also it can be parodied you know um in the 90s there was in living color and they parodied film noir you know where she was always calling the guy johnny his name's not johnny and she's always in black and white while everything else is in color so you know it's it's a very good homage but a parody and i think a lot pe- a lot of people you know um tend to uh get a little uh hysterical 
with it they don't like parody they don't get the the true essence of being parodied you know if you haven't been parodied then you have not made your mark and film noir makes its mark just as barbara walters didn't like being parodied but that was she had arrived she had made her mark so she's going to be parodied you know yes it's not the truth but it's looking at something and dissecting it and and spitting it back out at you and, and that's being parodied. And film noir has been parodied. Just as Bogart and Bacall have been parodied. You know, the voice, the tones. Saturday Night Live used to do this really good sketch with... Um, what? And her name escapes me right now. Um, she's played Hillary Clinton. <laughs> she's played uh, Kate McKinnon. Kate McKinnon did this really great um sketch on saturday night live where she's playing this old um movie star debet goldry i love this a senile elderly actress whose harsh experiences with being an actress in old hollywood including the ongoing issues of equal pay sexual harassment and abuse racial diversity in film roles and actresses getting involved behind the camera as directors and writers are more are outrageous than what modern actresses have gone through yeah that's that's a that's a good Whenever she's on there, it's like, oh, God. <laughs> I mean, she, you know, I think if they were to do a film noir moment with Debet Goldry. Um, in fact, maybe we should see if Debet Goldry can be allowed on. Um, here we go. Perfect. Haley Center event, big parts, small actresses, the state of gender equality in film. To my left, star of Ghostbusters, Leslie Jones. Uh, girl, I told you I wanted my credit to be the Olympics. <laughs> Going down the line, star of La La Land, Emma Stone. Yeah. <laughs> yes, you are. <laughs> well, next, we are so fortunate to be joined by a Hollywood legend, the star of over 300 feature films, and the first woman to ever dive into a swimming pool on screen, the great Debet Goldry. <laughs> it's an honor to be where am I? <laughs> and we are so pleased to have. And so I wanted to leave it at that because that you know what they're doing is they're parodying old actresses you know from that old from that era yeah. let's see act a certain ways so you don't get labeled as difficult yeah you gotta eat arsenic to make your skin pale <laughs> what I mean, Samuel Goldwyn had a rule that all of his starlets had to eat arsenic tablets to make their skin glow. And then they discovered it made us, um, I'm sorry, what is the word? Psychotic. <laughs> so to calm us down, they'd send in the monkey with a tray of opium. You know how it goes. <laughs> now... This is this is a shout out to Saturday Night Live and Kate McKinnon. Please put Debet Goldry 
and a film noir parody it could be mildred pierce it could i don't know you know um Mildred Pierce was a good noir. It truly was. But then I think what happened is Joan Crawford is one of those people where too much of a good thing. Um, because then they tried to do it with humoresque with her and John Garfield. Um, and, you know, uh, <laughs> I mean, I mean, there's, there's, you know, an interesting aspect and, I, and i'm not dogging joan crawford you know i think um <sighs> i mean there's there's a lot to be said about joan crawford i we could say she's kind of a lesbian uh icon because her and mercedes mccambridge i i i always kind of looked at them and thought uh, yeah okay you know and, and i'm not saying that joan crawford is not feminine but um in film noir, you know, could she have been, she couldn't be the femme fatale. That's the thing. I don't think she wanted to be the femme fatale. If you look at Mildred Pierce, she's anything but. She's the good mother with the bratty. Well, I we won't even call Vita bratty. Vita is a bitch. And she steps on her own mother and she shoots the husband. And then she's like, oh, mommy, get me out of it. What does that sound like? That sounds like today's world right there. Oh, I didn't mean to kill him. Come on, take me to Mexico. You know, yeah. Yeah. Or if if it were the 60s, we would call um we would call Vita a draft dodger. You know, daddy's going to pay him or her money to leave. Yeah, rather than face up what they need to do. You know. But um yeah. Noir has many different coats. It has many different aspects. And, you know, there's so many just different movies. There's so many movies to Noir. It's like, which one do you pick, you know? And so we, that's why I've tried to just look at also talking about Noir as a whole. Because it, it is a broad topic film-wise. Because it does continue. We've discussed that, you know, from Devil in a Blue Dress to The Grifters. There, there are noirish aspects in Pulp Fiction. Now, some of you would probably think I'm smoking something by saying that, because you're 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 more focused on the action of Pulp Fiction. You know, when Uma Thurman gets stabbed with the hypodermic needle, or when um, Bruce Willis's character gets shot at, uh, or every word out of Samuel L. Jackson's mouth, you know, but there are noir aspects to it. There's mystery and there's intrigue because you don't know really what went, what what Marcellus is about that character, or what John Travolta's character truly, you know, what's in the briefcase. Those are aspects of noir. You know, and Quentin, Tar Quentin Tarantino is a sponge. I've discussed that before on this film podcast. You know, Quentin Tarantino is like that hip hop producer who says, I'm going to take a few samples from this James Brown song and Motown and mix it up. And so what Quentin Tarantino does is he takes noir, he takes black exploitation, you know, mixes it together. We could 
put that into Jackie Brown, you know, or even some of the period pieces. But when it comes to noir, in you know, I I would also compare it to, like I said earlier, defining genres. You know, that's like in punk rock saying, oh, punk rock, we can't have drums on that because then we'll sound ska, you know. So there are movies that you wouldn't consider are noir, but they're noir. And as I had brought up the grifters, Stephen Fears, you know, was aware that okay angelica houston is in the grifters and her father was john houston who directed the maltese falcon you want to talk about a noir right there and that's his first film you know and took all of these aspects that became noir this is 1941 you know so i think you know everyone thinks that oh it started with double indemnity that's not true because it's been around a long time. You know, you could even call the Sherlock Holmes novels noir. If they're done right, they're noir. You know, it, it has to all do with the look and the feel of the film. There's one director who I could say has noir aspects. I mean, I wouldn't call his films noir. Although you could disagree with me, audience. Um, and that's... Uh, that's Paul Thomas Anderson. Paul Thomas Anderson did Boogie Nights, which you could say is, has some noir qualities. Okay? There Will Be Blood. The Master. Phantom Thread. Don't you just love those titles? Magnolia. You know, when whenever I watch a Paul Thomas Anderson movie, there there is a mystery and intrigue to it. And then it's also the cinematography and the light and the feel. And that's where you could fit the new or title. But then you have something like There Will Be Blood, where it's about the cinematography, the look and the feel. You know, because in There Will Be Blood, there is a lot of mystery going on. It's like, okay, how did he get that baby? We don't know. But then you later find out what he really thinks of the baby you know his his object to things his rolling over things he's an oil man he's a businessman one it's it's like when someone tries to you know say that they're born again you know and my uh, my thing of that is you know once a crook always a crook you can put feathers on it and and disguise it but you're always going to be a son of a bitch you're never you're never going to change it and there are some people that i know are like that they'll say oh i'm i'm better now okay that's good you know and we could fit that in noir aspects you know these characters who oh i've turned a new leaf and then you private investigator follows them and oh bullshit they've turned a new leaf they you know yeah let's let's not go there and you could fit that into a noir of today now television what i've noticed is television has really <laughs> blurred everything you know we have all these crime shows no noir because it's just about kill book them trial kill book them trial and that's so boring it's like enough already enough 
but you know if they were to go to demolition man it would be murder death kill so that can't be a noir i i'm mentioning all these films i'm probably making some of you shake your head and laugh you know but that's that's you know we can't take ourselves too seriously because if we do then the art the art just sucks it suffers it suffers and you know that can also be said about good music you know and that's why i mentioned neil young um a lot of people hear neil young and they think oh yeah he was mentioned in that leonard skinner song well you know <laughs> if you notice that didn't really phase neil young because he continued okay he didn't have time for that and you know if there was animosity between him and leonard skinner who knows who cares quite honest honestly i was never really a leonard skinner fan you know yeah free bird okay sweet home no no um yes we're veering away from from noir but we're making a point here okay you know could could if if the right film were made if it was a music video and if we put a bogart hat on neil young it could be classified as a noir music video and i'm sure he would do that but he wouldn't do it in the way that you expect okay that's why with perry mason there's noir aspects there's there's things within there that wouldn't have been in a, a noir film in the 1940s. First of all, cussing, sexual situations, you know, gotta love HBO for that. You know, I'm not a prude. It's like, hey, okay, that's re that's real. You know, I mean, I'm sure people are like, oh, they didn't really cuss like that in the 1930s. Well, were you there? So, and you know, talking about someone who's shell-shocked and pt you know it was called shell shock syndrome before it was ptsd and a lot of these um private eyes in film noir are former veterans who have shell shock shell shock shock syndrome not it wasn't it wasn't called ptsd until later you know and how they they fit into this noir aspect you know we could even Yes, we'll we'll pull it from television. The character of Magnum PI. Okay. He's a loner. You know, he has Higgins. And there's always a mystery and intrigue to what he does. I bring this up because, you know, forty years ago is when Magnum PI premiered. I wouldn't know because I was just a fetus when it all well no. No, I was I was a baby. But, you know, when you're a baby, you don't have memories of the premiere of Magnum. No. But there is a noir quality. I know you're thinking I'm crazy, but whatever. There's a noir quality to Magnum P.I. Because there's always been mystery and intrigue to that character of Thomas Magnum. As a little kid watching, I just thought his name was Magnum. I didn't realize his name was Thomas, you know. But, and, and that's part of noir is there's certain things you don't know in these movies until later on you know could we classify the witness for the prosecution as film noir 
that miss that that ending with Marlena Dietrich, probably one of Marlena Dietrich's greatest performances, wasn't even nominated for it, and that pissed her off. You know, um, I mean, there's there's films like that. You know, some people wouldn't classify. Hitchcock as noir but then if you look at something like the movie Notorious with Ingrid Bergman and Cary Grant and Claude Rains we could classify that as noir because that was the that was the moment that Hitchcock broke away from David O. Selznick because before that Hitchcock didn't have a pot to piss in artistically because David O. Selznick had him by the balls and it wasn't until David O. Selznick basically had to sell the rights to Notorious that Hitchcock took them. And that's how he became the Hitchcock that we know. So there are noir aspects in the Hitchcock films. Some of you would disagree. What I'd love to do is have Eddie Mueller on my show, but it's not like he's going to call me out of the blue. Let's get real here. So we're going to dive more into The Third Man on Saturday. As always, Unpleasant Dreams. Good evening, and welcome to the Dr. Zeus Film Podcast. Yes, this is Noir November, and you could say that this man's scores could be used in Noir film. In fact, if you think of the menacing and the mystique and the intrigue of the score that he won the Oscar for, The Hateful Eight, you could also use that in a film Noir type of style now yesterday would have been his birthday and i thought mm, i should have known since he was a jeopardy question today with the work that he did with his friend and collaborator sergio leone born on november 10th 1928 in rome italy he died this july the 6th 2020 at the age of 91 I'm talking about the maestro, the man himself, Ennio Morricone, and we had done a tribute to him back in July. Such an amazing composer, conductor, musician, producer, everything about Ennio Morricone, he would have been 92 yesterday. And so I figured we are going to celebrate him today. Think of those films that he scored. And rightfully so, he is a Jeopardy question. Oh my goodness. After playing the trumpet in jazz bands in the 1940s, he became a studio arranger for RCA Victor and in 1955 started ghostwriting for film and theater. Throughout his career, he composed music for such artists as Palenka, Mina, Milva, Zecchero, and Andrea Porcelli. From 1960 to 1975, Morricone gained international fame for composing music for the Westerns and with an estimated 10 million copies sold, Once Upon a Time in the West is one of the best-selling scorers worldwide. From 1966 to 1980, he was the main member of Irgur... How do you say this? 
I don't want to. I don't want to mispronounce it. I don't know. This is funny. Like when you try to. Ah, there we go. Come on, come on. No, I want to say it right though. See how Siri never, whatever, Grappo, in Grappo, one of the most experimental composers collectives, and in 1969, he co-founded the Forum Music Village, a prestigious recording studio. From the 1970s, Morricone excelled in Hollywood, composing for prolific American directors such as Don Siegel, Mike Nichols, Brian De Palma, Barry Levinson, Oliver Stone, Warren Beatty, John Carpenter, and Quentin Tarantino. In 1977, he composed the official theme for the 1978 FIFA World Cup. He continued to compose music for European productions such as Marco Polo, La Priva, Nostromo, Fateless Caro, In Me Fiese, Si Te Palita. Morricone's music has been reused in television series including The Simpsons and The Sopranos and in many films including Inglorious Bastards and Django Unchained. He has scored seven westerns for Sergio Corbici. Ah, his Ringo Duligi and Sergio Leone's the big or Sergio Solima's the big gun down in face to face. Morricone worked extensively for other film genres with directors such as Bernardo Bettolucci, Mario Bellini, Rolando Joffrey, Roman Polanski, Luce Flice. His acclaimed soundtrack for the mission in 1986 was certified gold in the United States. The album Yo-Yo Ma plays Ennio Morricone stayed for 105 weeks on the Billboard Top Classical Album charts. But Morricone is best known for the ecstasy of gold. Man with a harmonica, here's to you. Chamia. The good, the bad, and the ugly. Death rides a horse among many. In 2007, he received the Honorary Academy Award for his magnificent and multi-faced contributions to the art of film music. He was nominated for a further six Oscars and in 2016 received his only competitive Academy Award for his score to Quentin Tarantino's film, The Hateful Eight. At the time, becoming the oldest person ever to win a competitive Oscar. His other achievements include three Grammy Awards, three Golden Globes, six BAFTAs. I sound like J James Lipton from Inside the Actor's Studio now. The Golden Line Honorary Award, the Polar Music Prize of 2010, Morricone influenced many artists, from film scoring to other styles of genres, including Hans Zimmer, Danger Mouse, Dire Straits, Muse, Metallica, and Radiohead. Oh, yeah. Hmm. This is true. This is a truly remarkable life. And we can't, we can't overlook that. We can't overlook how important his contribution was to films, to music. I mean, I've said this, he's like a rock star to me and I don't think he would like me saying that. Maestro, apologies. Um, 
you know he scored once upon a time in the west with sergio leone subsequent to the success of the dollars trilogy Morricone also composed the scores for Once Upon a Time in the West and Leone's all-last credited Western film, A Fistful of Dynamite, as well as a score for My Name is Nobody. Morricone's score for Once Upon a Time in the West is one of the best-selling original instrumental scores in the world today. With as many as 10 million copies sold, including 1 million copies in France. And more than 800,000 copies in the Netherlands. One of the main themes from the score, A Man with a Harmonica, became known worldwide and sold more than 1,260,000 copies in France. Now, Man with a Harmonica, let's translate this here, give it its original name. What was it? La Dumere del Monica. Harmonica. The collaboration with Leone is considered one of the most extremely exemplary con- collaborations between a director and a composer. Morricone's last score for Leone was for his last film, the gangster drama Once Upon a Time in America, released in 1984. Leone died on... April 30th, 1989, of a heart attack at the age of 60. Before his death in 1989, Leone was part way through the planning of a film on Siege of Leningrad, set during World War II. By 1989, Leone had been able to acquire one million in financing from independent backers for the war film. He had convinced Morricone to compose the film score. The project was canceled when Leone died two days before he was officially to sign on for the film. In early 2003, Italian filmmaker Giuseppe Torrentoro announced he would direct a film called Leningrad. The film was yet, has yet to be put into production and Marconi was cagey as to the details on account of Torrentoni's superstitious nature. That's too bad. Hmm. And so now we move into a new period for Ennio Morricone. Very interesting. On three occasions, Brian De Palma worked with Morricone. The Untouchables in 1987, the 1989 war drama Casualties of War, and the science fiction film From Mission to Mars. Morricone's score for The Untouchables resulted in his third nomination for the Academy Award for Best Score. In a 2001 interview with The Guardian, Morricone stated that he had good experiences with De Palma. De Palma is delicious. He respects music. He respects composers. For The Untouchables, everything I proposed to him was fine. But then he wanted a piece that I didn't like at all. And of course, he didn't have an agreement on that. It was something I didn't want to write. A triumphal piece for the police. I think I wrote nine different pieces in this total. I said, please don't choose the seventh because it was the worst. And because, and guess what? He chose the seventh, but it really suits the movie. Another American film director, Barry Levinson, commissioned the composer on two occasions. First for the crime drama Bugsy, starring Warren Beatty, which received 10 Oscar nominations, winning two for Best Art Direction, and set direction and best costume design he didn't have a piano in his studio i always thought that with composers you sit at the piano and you try to find the melody there's no such thing with morricone he hears a melody and he writes it down he hears the orchestration completely done says levinson in an interview 
So see, he knew his stuff. Ennio Morricone didn't play, okay? During his career in Hollywood, Morricone was approached for numerous other projects, including Grega Nava's A Time of Destiny, Frantic by Polish film director Roman Polanski, Franco Zaffarelli's 1990 film Hamlet, sorry, Mel Gibson, crime film State of Grace, Rampage, and the romantic drama Love Affair. In 2009, Tarantino originally wanted Morricone to compose the film score for Inglorious Bastards. Morricone was unable to because the film's sped up production schedule conflicted with his scoring of Giuseppe Torrente's Barria. However, Tarantino did use eight tracks composed by Morricone in the film, with four of them included on the soundtrack. The tracks came originally from Morricone's scores for The Big Gun Down, Revolver, and La Stafria. In 2012, Morricone composed the song. Let's get this right. Get it right. Ancoraki. Ancoraki with lyrics by Italian singer Elisa for Tarantino's Django Unchained. A track that appeared together with three existing music tracks composed by Morricone on the soundtrack. Ania Key was one of the contenders for an Academy Award nomination for Best Original Song category, but eventually the song was not nominated. <laughs> on January 4th, 2013, Morricone presented Tarantino with a Life Achievement Award at a special ceremony being cast as a con continuation of International Rome Film Festival. In 2014, Morricone was misquoted as claiming that he would never work with Tarantino again, and later agreed to write an original film score for Tarantino's The Hateful Eight, which won an Academy Award for Morricone. This is a long and illustrious life. He was married in 1956 to... Maria Travia, whom he would meet in 1950. Travia wrote lyrics to complement her husband's pieces. Her works included the Latin text for the mission. They had three sons and a daughter, Marco, Alessandra, the conductor and film composer Andrea, and Giovanni Morricone, a filmmaker who lives in New York City. Morricone lived in Italy his entire life and never desired to live in Hollywood. The New York Times magazines listed him among hundreds of artists whose material was reportedly destroyed in a 2008 Universal fire. Mm. This is this is a man that we must revere. His works of music are amazing. I I really wanted to dive into this. So, you know, I thought we, yeah, we should be talking about film noir, but he did compose the Untouchables score. And the Untouchables score is as close to film noir as you're going to get. Well, also, we could say a little bit of The Hateful Eight because it's such a menacing type of score. Fistful of Dollars. Before the Revolution, A Pistol for Ringo, Nightmare Castle, Agent 007, Mission Bloody Mar Mary, Highest Pressure, Fists in the Pocket, Thrilling, For a Few Dollars More, The Bible in the Beginning, 
Seven guns for Mac McGregor's. Wake up and die. The Hawks and the Sparrows. How I Learned to Love Women. For a few extra dollars. The Good, the Bad, and the Ugly. The Witches. Grand Slam. The Girl at the General. Come Play With Me. A Sky Full of Stars for a Roof. Death Rides a Horse. Once Upon a Time in the West. A Quiet Place in the Country. I'm just reading a few of them off. There's so many. Mm. This is one of my favorites. Two Mules for Sister Sarah. Tis pity she's a whore. 1870, Winged Devils. I mean, the list just goes on. What an extraordinary... Ah, Days of Heaven. The Professional. Time to Kill. Casualties of War. Fat Man and Little Boy. Once Upon a Time in America. Hamlet. Bugsy. Husbands and Lovers. City of Joy. The Long Silence. Lorenzo's Oil. In the Line of Fire. The Phantom of the Opera. Bullworth. The Hateful Eight. The Correspondence. Being his last score that he conducted. He has sold well over 70 million records worldwide, including 6.5 million albums and singles in France, and over 3 million in the United States, and more than 2 million albums in Korea. Ennio Morricone composed and arranged scores for more than 400 film and television productions. Morricone was considered one of the most influential and best-selling film composers since the late 1940s. And yesterday, Maestro Morricone would have been 92 years young, born November 10th, 1928. Also known as Maestro Dan Salvio Leonoclis Nicholas. This is an important... I mean, you think of those scores. You think of also... Tarantino used Death Rides a Horse in Kill Bill 1. And then he used another theme of Morricone's in Kill Bill 2 for The Bride. You know, th that is a perfect marriage. And I don't believe that Morricone didn't like Tarantino. He seemed to like him very much. Doesn't hurt that, you know, he wins the Academy Award under the musical direction for... One of Tarantino's films. This is an extraordinary man. And so I want to say, hey, wherever you are, happy birthday. Maestro, Maestro, Marconi. Salud. As always, unpleasant dreams. Good evening. And welcome to the Dr. Zeus Film Podcast. Neo-noir. I figured we're going to try to cover all of the bases of noir film for noir November. And I thought, well, 
There is a neo-noir film that I think a lot of us are aware of. It came out in 1974, starring one Jack Nicholson and Faye Dunaway. This is years before Mommy Dearest. I'm talking about Roman Polanski's oh, controversial filmmaker right there, Chinatown. Produced by Robert Evans, the late Robert Evans, written by Robert Town. Chinatown is neo-noir. Now, it is along the lines of noir. It is noir. Strike me right there. Because it's this detective. But he happens to be a nosy detective, shall we say. Hello, Claude. Where'd you get the midget? You're a very nosy fellow, kitty cat, huh? You know what happens to nosy fellows? Huh? No? Wanna guess? Huh? No? Okay. They lose their noses. And that is one example of film noir. But this is neo-noir because it's a new breed of film noir in the 1970s. 1970s is basically the second golden age of film. In this scene, you have Jack Nicholson, Jake Geddes, and Roman Polanski as the gentleman who attempts to cut his nose off because he's a nosy detective. J.J. Jake Geddes. Is it Geddes or Geddes? Jits. Geddes. Faye Dunaway is Evelyn Cross Mulray. John Huston as Noah, Noah Cross. John Hillerman, you know, Higgins as Russ Yelberton. Mm. Diane Ladd as Ida Sessions. Roman Polanski as the man with the knife. That's what he's credited as. And we all know about the story of Roman Polanski. But tonight we're talking about neo-noir Chinatown. Chinatown is, um, so here's what happens. In 1971, Robert Evans, the producer, offered Robert Town $175,000 to write a screenplay for The Great Gatsby. But Town felt he could not better the F. Scott Fitzgerald novel. Instead, Town asked for $25,000 from Evans to write his own story, Chinatown, to which Evans agreed. Chinatown is set in 1937 and portrays a manipulation of a critical municipal resource, water, by a, sh- a shroud of shouty uh, oligarchs. It was the part, first part of Town's planned trilogy about the character J.J. Giddies and the Los Angeles power structure. The second part, The Two Jakes, has Giddies caught up in another grab for a natural resource oil in the 1940s. It was directed by Jack Nicholson and released in 1990, but the second film's commercial and critical failure scuttled plans to make Giddies versus Giddies about the third final resource land in Los Angeles, 1968. The character of Hollis Mulray was inspired by and loosely based on the Irish immigrant William Mulholland. According to Mulholland's granddaughter, Mulholland was the superintendent and chief engineer of the Los Angeles Department of Water and Power who oversaw the construction of the 230-mile aquint that acquires water from the Owens Valley to Los Angeles. 
So Chinatown is factual and fiction at the same time. Neo-noir. There are so many moments in Chinatown. Legendary moments that I thought we would visit them. You know, this is before Faye Dunaway learned to overact. <laughs> yeah, here we go. enough. You can't eat the Venetian blinds. I just had them installed on Wednesday. No good. What can I tell you, kid? You're right. When you're right, you're right. You're right. And so there are so many moments. That's an opening where, you know, he's a private detective and so he's showing his client his work and the pictures are not flattering. Here's another one. You get so much publicity, you gotta get blasé about it. Let's face it, Jake, you're practically a movie star. Look at that, Barn. Yeah, the heat's murder. Sure is. Fools' names and fools' faces. What's that, pal? Nothing. You got a hell of a way to make a living. Oh? What do you do to make ends meet? Mortgage department, First National Bank. Tell me, did you foreclose on many families this week? We don't publish a record in the paper, I can tell you that. Neither do I. No, you have your press agent do it. Who is this bimbo, Barney? Is he a regular customer or what? Yeah, listen, pal, I make an honest living. People only come to me when they're in a desperate situation. I help them out. I don't kick families out of their houses like you bums down at the bank, Jake. Can I tell you about the guy who maybe like to step down out of the barber chair? I mean, we go outside and discuss it. What do you think? Jake, let me tell you about the guy I got tired of. I don't know how that thing got in the newspaper. It was so quick I didn't even know it myself. Make an honest living. Of course you do. Huh? Well, anyway, this story, this guy who got tired of screwing his wife and he said to his friend, An honest what do I do? living, so you the understand? Guy says, why don't you do what the Chinese do? He says, what do the Chinese do? He says, the Chinese, they screw a little and they get tired. <laughs> Duffy. Hey, Walt! Sophie. <clears throat> Go to little girl's room for a minute. Okay. <laughs> but Mr. Giddies. Yes, Sophie. Yes, Mr. Giddies. Jake, Duffy, listen to me, man. I want to tell you a story. So there's this guy, Walsh, you understand? He's tired of screwing his wife. Jake, so a wait problem. a second, Duffy. You're always in such a hurry. So his friend says to him, hey, why didn't you do it like the Chinese do? So he says, well, how did the Chinese do it? And the guy says, well, the Chinese, first they screw a little bit. 
Then they stop. They go and uh, read a little Confucius, come back, screw a little bit more, then they stop again, go back, and they screw a little Jake. bit more. Walsh, just listen to me for a second. I'm going to love this. Now, <clears throat> then they go back and they screw a little bit more, and then they go out and they contemplate the moon or something like that. It makes it more exciting. <laughs> so now, the guy goes home and he starts screwing his own wife. See? So he screws her for a little bit, and then he stops, and he goes out of the room, and he reads Life magazine. Then he goes back in, he starts screwing again, he says, excuse me for a minute, honey, and he goes out and he smokes a cigarette. Now his wife is getting sore as hell. He comes back in the room, he starts screwing again, he gets up to start to leave again to go look at the moon. She looks at him and says, hey, what's the matter with you? You're screwing just like a Chinaman. <laughs> Jesus. That <laughs> Barney <laughs> Mr. Gittes? Yes. Do you know me? Well, uh... I think I would have remembered. I... Have we ever met? Well, no. Never? Never. And of course, that is Evelyn Mulray. Now, a woman came in earlier posing as Evelyn Mulray, and that is, of course, Diane Ladd. And yeah, there, there's a lot going on in Chinatown, and it's that's why it's um. If we can get over to it, let's cue it back up. And it's not there. So he gets to know Faye Dunaway's character, Evelyn Mulray. The husband has been murdered. It This is neo-noir. It's noir, but it's neo-noir. It's the 1970s, but it takes place in the 1930s. And with Jack Nicholson, it's always good. You got to think of the 1970s. That was... That was Jack at his strongest. Five easy pieces. One flew over the cuckoo's nest. Uh, Chinatown. He had just done... Um, I, his first nomination he got for the Academy was for supporting for Easy Rider in 1969. Now, he, of course, was nominated for Chinatown. There are some interesting characters in Chinatown, including... John Houston. <laughs> Tell me, um, what are the police? Say? They're calling it an accident. Who's the investigating officer? Lou Escobar. He's a lieutenant. You know him? Oh, yeah. Where from? We used to work together in Chinatown. <clears throat> Would you call him a capable man? Very. Honest? As far as it goes. Of course, he has to swim in the same water we all do. Of course, but you've no reason to think he's bungled the case. None. Not too bad. Too bad? Hmm. Disturbs me. Makes me think you're taking my daughter for a ride. Financially speaking, of course. Now, what's interesting is, is that John Huston didn't really think much of his own acting. He was a film director, but in Chinatown, he is this creepy, menacing father, Noah Cross. In reality, though, at this time, John Huston's daughter, Angelica Huston, was dating Jack Nicholson, who plays Jake Giddis. 
So isn't that interesting? It's a legendary romance that she talks about in her in her book. But Chinatown, it, you know, you've got these moments and it's truly, I mean, this is truly film noir, but it's neo-noir. And I remember the first time I watched it, you know, I, I went on this renaissance in the early 2000s and I, I wanted to watch all of these classics. Here we go. There's nothing more to say. Will you get my car, please? Okay, go home. But in case you're interested, your husband was murdered. Somebody's been dumping thousands of tons of water from the city's reservoirs, and we're supposed to be in the middle of a drought. He found out about it, and he was killed. There's a waterlogged drunk in the morgue, involuntary manslaughter if anybody wants to take the trouble, which they don't. It seems like half the city is trying to cover it all up, which is fine by me. But Mrs. Mulray, I goddamn near lost my nose, and I like it. I like breathing through it. And I still think that you're hiding something. And so what he's getting at here is there, there's there's not a whole lot to the story that she's telling. And those of you who have seen Chinatown, we you know what I'm talking about, okay? And we're we're getting to it. You know, there's a lot of creepy characters going on in Chinatown. So let's revisit John Houston again as Noah Cross. See, Mr. Gibbs, either you bring the water to L.A. or you bring L.A. to the water. How are you going to do that? By incorporating the valley into the city. Simple as that. How much are you worth? I have no idea. How much do you want? I just want to know what you're worth. Over 10 million? Oh, my, yes. Why are you doing it? How much better can you eat? What can you buy that you can't already afford? The future, Mr. Gitz. The future. Now, where's the girl? I want the only daughter I've got left. You found out Evelyn was lost to me a long time ago. Who do you blame for that, her? I don't blame myself. See, Mr. Gitz, most people never have to face the fact that the right time and the right place, they're capable of anything. And so when he, the way he says that is truly creepy because then you're like, okay, what's going on here as he says anything? Well, Jack, uh, Jake Giddis and Evelyn Mulray begin to get involved. Meanwhile, Jake Giddis has, has come upon how Mr. Mulray was really murdered. Okay. So then we enter a very awkward reveal between Evelyn Mulray and Jake Giddis. Now remember, this is this is neo noir, but it's noir for us. I found these in your backyard in the pond. They belonged to your husband, didn't they? Didn't they? I don't know. Yes, probably. Yes, positively. It's where he was drowned. What? There's no time to be shocked by the truth. 
The coroner's report proves that he had salt water in his lungs when he was killed. Just take my word for it, all right? Now, I want to know how it happened, and I want to know why, and I want to know before Escobar gets here, because I don't want to lose my license. I don't know what you are talking about. I, this is the craziest, the most insane thing. Stop it! I'm going to make it easy for you. You were jealous. You had a fight. He fell. He hit his head. It was an accident. But his girl is a witness. So you had to shut her up. You don't have the guts to harm her, but you got the money to keep her mouth shut. Yes or no? No! Who is she? And don't give me that crap about your sister because you don't have a sister. I'll tell you... I'll tell you the truth. Good. What's her name? Catherine. Catherine who? She's my daughter. I said I want the truth. She's my sister. She's my daughter. My sister, my daughter. I said I want the truth. No! She's my sister and my daughter. <laughs> Please, go back. Oh, God, say, keep her upstairs. Go back. My father and I... understand. Or is it too tough for you? And so what we what that reveal shows us, she doesn't even have to say much. The way she just says, my father and I understand. And then Jack, Jake Giddis is like, he raped you. And she's nodding. And she says, I was 15. I wanted to leave, but I couldn't. So then we learn the very disturbing, shocking truth that Noah Cross has committed incest, having a child with his own daughter. And I mean, you know, she, Faye Dunaway, <laughs> despite Mommy Dearest, truly plays a heroine within this film. Jake Giddis is the hero and the evil man that they have to defeat is Noah Cross, John Houston. So it gets to a standpoint and what happens is a lot goes down in Chinatown. And I figured thankfully through these clips, there's not a lot of music involved that we can use them for tonight's show. I, I, I am your, your grandmother. Come, miss. My dear. Your grandmother. Go on, go on. No, no, go away. I'll call my dear. Get away from her. Get away. Please, 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 Come to my... Get away from her. How many years have I got? She's mine, too. She's never going to know that. Evelyn, you're a disturbed woman. You cannot hope to provide. Evelyn, put that gun away. Let the police handle this. He owns the police. Get away from her. You'll have to kill me first. Get away. Get away. 
legendary movie it's a neo-noir from 1974 that rhymed but we also can't forget the ending and if you've never seen the movie well you can see it now Forget it, Jake. It's Chinatown. Forget it, Jake. It's Chinatown. This is a lot. This is a lot. This was a legendary movie. I love this. William A. Fracker accepted the cinematographer position from Polanski when Paramount agreed, and he worked with the studio previously on Polanski's Rosemary's Baby. Robert Evans never consulted about the design and insisted that the offer he rescinded since he felt pairing Polanski and Franker again would create a team with too much control over the project and complicate the production Franker was replaced by John A. Alonzo. In keeping with the technique, Polanski attributes to Raymond Chandler, all of the events of the film are seen subjectively through the main character's eyes. For example, when Giddies is knocked unconscious, the film fades to black and fades in when he awakens. Giddies appears in every scene of the film. On set, Polanski and Dunaway had well-documented conflict. Mediating pitched battles between the abrupt abrace of Polanski and the temperamental histronic Dunaway was a challenge. She demonstrated certifiable proof of insanity, said Nicholson. Yes. So Chinatown went on to be nominated for Best Picture, Robert Evans. Best Director, Roman Polanski. Best Actor, Jack Nicholson. Best Actress, Faye Dunaway. Best Film Editing, Sam Osteen. Best Art Direction. Best Costume Design. Best Cinematography. Best Sound. Best Music Score. It won for Best Original Screenplay for Robert Town. So Chinatown has a long history. Of course, there was The Two Jakes was a very unsuccessful sequel. But Chinatown... It's it's been one of those days. Chinatown stands alone of the film noir experience. And I hope you've enjoyed tonight's podcast of the Dr. Zeus Film 
podcast. It's Noir November. Pull up the covers and watch Chinatown, directed by Roman Polanski, starring Jack Nicholson, Faye Dunaway, and Mr. John Houston. Unpleasant Dreams.